For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, happy Father's Day uh, to all of you fathers. Uh, happy Father's Day to you. If you're joining us online, happy Father's Day to you. Uh, unfortunately, if you're joining us online, we have root beer floats after service, and you don't. So... Um, you missed out. But if you're here, we got river floats afterwards. So uh, if nothing else about this morning is good, just, just hold on to that truth, right? Just hold on to it. One day I'll get to have a reaper float. I'm kidding. Um, hey, we are working through the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible you want to follow along, Hebrews 4 is where we're going to be. Um, all the relevant text should be here when we come to it. Um, Hebrews 4, verse 12 is where we're going to be. And to start off, I, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story. Um, some years ago, it was the week after Easter, and I got an email from a lady or a text message. She contacted me, and she said, hey, Sean, could I get together with you this week? And, you know, I was like, yeah, if, you, if you've ever been around pastors the week after Easter, like the week after Easter is like the best week for pastors, right? Because the church is packed, everyone's excited, it's been awesome, and you're like, woo! I'm like, yeah, let's get together, let's chat, right? And so she comes into my office. And she sits down in front of me, and she's very kind and gracious in her demeanor. And she says to me, she says, Sean, I just want to tell you thank you. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I know Easter was awesome for me, but, uh, you know. And she says, uh, this week, you have allowed me to learn how to show grace even to my pastor. I was like, okay. And she says, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> she, goes, she goes like this, okay, okay. She has a Bible with her. And she goes, Sean, Sean, look, look, look at this. You, you know the scriptures. You know what the Bible says. Look, look, you know. It says Hebrews 4. Sean, you don't have to always try and be creative. You don't always have to come up with a story. You don't always have to come up with something creative. Just, just read the book. It says Hebrews 4. It says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. You know it, Sean. Just read the book. And it was everything inside of me. If you know me, you know I don't have a lot of self-restraint. It was everything inside of me to not quote back to her. The profound work of art called The Princess Bride. <laughs> and say, you keep saying that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Today, we have the awesome fun. I've been excited for the whole series of Hebrews to get to Hebrews 14. Because I think for many of us, it does not mean what you think it means. Let, let me read it to you. Let me read it to you. Hebrews 14, it says this. Sorry, Hebrews 4. There's not a Hebrews 14. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 says this. Hebrews 4 verse 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes on to describe with more adjectives how powerful and all the things it does, able to divide bone and marrow. And, and this is our verse. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and I have to say as, as humbly as I can that for some of us, um, I do not think this means what you think it means. Uh, sometimes when we come to sermons, there are some sermons, you, you know the point. 
right? When, when, when God says, um, if you do not forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Right? Pretty straightforward. You know what that means. It means you've got to forgive people, right? Uh, and so when we come to a sermon like that, we wrestle with application. We wrestle with what does forgiveness look like? What does biblical forgiveness look like? Does it mean forgetting? And we wrestle with how we live out that thing. But there are some times where we come to verses like this verse where we have to do some groundwork to even understand what's going on. And so today, I, I want to give you a little heads up. Today, we're going to spend a little bit of time doing some work to understand this, and then we're going to come back around at the end, and we're going to ask the question of, what, what, well, what does it mean for us? So today, you're going to learn. I, I know a lot of you are teachers or students, and you just ended your school year, and you, like your brain just shut off. But for today, give me 20 minutes that you can just kind of stay engaged a little bit, and we're going to learn two things, two things that we call two hermeneutical rules, okay? Hermeneutics is just a fancy way of how you study the Bible. And here's, here's the thing I'd propose to you. Okay? How you study the Bible is more important than what you study in the Bible. How you study the Bible is more important than what you study. Here's why. Here's why. You guys have all experienced, probably in some way, someone taking Scripture out of context. You've heard stories about it. You've watched a documentary about the countless cults that have originated from people taking Scripture out of context. Because how they study the Bible was in error in a way that developed theology that was in error. So the way we study the Bible matters. So one of the rules of hermeneutics, first one we're going to look at today, is, is this, is, is we let the Bible interpret the Bible. Okay, rule, hermeneutics, rule number one, if you like notes, um, you're going to love this week, because I got some points for you. Hermeneutics, let the Bible interpret the Bible. Here's what that means, right? If you've ever been involved in a contract... You understand that when you're writing a contract and when you sign a contract, there are times in a contract where um, it might even say like terms and definitions, right? Or maybe in the beginning of a contract, if you're selling a piece of property, it'll say the property for sale is defined as, and it'll give like some map coordinates, right? And it'll say from this point on, when referring to the property, this is what is defined as the property. So what that means, okay, is when you come to page 12 and it says the property blah, 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 blah. That when you're working with a contract, you don't get to go, well, you know, I think the con the, the, that this time in this contract that the property means whatever. The contract has defined what it means, right? Are you with me on this? Okay. The Bible uses a lot of phrases and a lot of words, and we, here, we don't get to decide how they're defined. It's great that you have an opinion about what grace means. But when you're coming to scripture, all that matters is what the Bible defines grace as. It's great that you have a heart for justice, but you don't get to define what biblical justice is. It's great that, that you have an opinion about what grace or love or mercy or compassion or joy looks like. But when we're studying scripture, we have to do the hard work of asking the question, when the Bible uses this word or phrase, what does the Bible mean? So sometimes our language is so ingrained, and, and, and here's the thing. I, I never want to, the, 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 one of the, 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 the wrestles with this conversation is I never want to dissuade you from studying Scripture, from memorizing Scripture, from reciting Scripture, from challenging yourself and challenging other people with Scripture. 
I, I never want to dissuade you from that. But scripture is an incredibly powerful weapon. And when our theology is reduced to coffee cups and memes and two-minute YouTube videos, it can become a very dangerous weapon. And so when we are approaching scripture, we have to do the hard work of asking, what is the Bible trying, how does the Bible define these terms? What is the Bible saying? What does the Bible mean when it says salvation? Because it may mean something different than you've decided it means. What does the Bible say when it means joy? What does that mean? When it says peace, what does that mean? Because I may have decided something that is not what the Bible's trying to tell me. So when we come to this passage, right, when we look at Hebrews 4.12, a question we have to ask ourselves is, what does this phrase mean? The word of God. A lot of us have an opinion already. When we come, if you spend much time in church, you know what the word of God is, right? It's right here. This is the word of God. And that's exactly what the woman meant when she sat in my office was, Sean, don't you know scripture says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword? The problem is that's not how the Bible defines it. That's not how the Bible defines it. These are our holy scriptures canonized with the 66 books, complete and full and accurate the way they are presented to us today. But this is not ever what scripture means when it talks about the word of God or the word of the Lord. Let me show you some examples of some things that it does mean, okay? Because we got to do the work. We ask the question, what does it mean? Okay, Matthew 15, 5 and 6, it says this. But whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. This is Jesus speaking. He is not honoring his father or mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Okay? So sometimes what, what Jesus is talking about, because I don't know if you know this, but um, the New Testament was written after Jesus died. Okay? So he could not, he could not have been referring to the fullness of this book. Sometimes when scripture talks about the word of God, it means, right, what Jesus means here, the Old Testament, uh, Jewish scriptures, or maybe just the, the, the first five books, the Torah, maybe just the first five books, but it means something about this, this portion of scripture up here. Sometimes that's what it means when it says the word of God. So, sometimes, sometimes it means something different. Luke 3 gives us a different image. It says this, and the high priest, and the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, we can just look even just from this little context without reading the rest of Luke to understand like the writer, the, the Luke is not saying that the Old Testament came to John, Right? Wasn't like John had never heard the Old Testament or the Torah, and all of a sudden, he's in the wilderness, and God just gives him on tablets the Old Testament. He knew it. But instead, what the writer of Luke is telling, what Luke is telling us is that in some miraculous way, he received a message from God, the word of the Lord. A, a lot of times throughout the Old Testament, this is the way the, the, the phrase is used, is the word of the Lord came to someone. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. Right? And it's to say that in some way God spoke to them. And sometimes God spoke to them so that he might speak through them. So that the word of the Lord might go out to the people. 
right? So sometimes the word of the Lord is a, is a message from God. Sometimes, right? Acts 6, this is used a lot in the book of Acts. Sometimes it, it doesn't mean either of those things. Sometimes it says this, the word of God kept spreading, and the numbers of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, again, you can look at context, and you can look and go, um, this probably isn't referring to the Old Testament because the priests already knew the Old Testament. So it's not like all of a sudden they heard about the book of Exodus, and they're like, what? Jesus, right? This, in context, is clearly referring to something different. It's pretty clear in the context of Acts 6 that it's, it's become synonymous with the message of the gospel, right? The good news about Jesus, the word of the Lord, the message of God, right, has, has come. And that's, so sometimes it means the Old Testament. Sometimes it means a message from God. Sometimes it means the gospel, my favorite. You may know this one. Sometimes it, it means Jesus. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to be really clear that what it's referring to in the Word is Jesus. And we don't have time to go into the Greek imagery that's all built into this thing, in this beautiful passage of beginning in John. But I, I want to show you another spot where it, it, it says this. in Revelation, just brace yourself. It's a little intense. It says this. He, being Jesus, it's really clear in Revelation. If you don't trust me, you can go write it down and go read Revelation 19. He, being Jesus, is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The Word of God. So we come to this passage in Hebrews. It says the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And what's it referring to? Well, well, sometimes in Scripture it's referring to the Old Testament. Sometimes it's just a message from God. Sometimes it's the gospel. Sometimes it's... Jesus, And so how do we understand it? Well, here's a little definition for you. It's kind of the Amplified uh, Bible version of, if you've ever read the Amplified Bible version, it's, there's a lot of words in it. It says this, the word of God in the Bible is the message or the truth or the wisdom. That's an Old Testament language that it likes to use a lot is wisdom, the wisdom of God made manifest. The, the message of God, namely made manifest or fully known, in Jesus. In Jesus. That when the Bible talks about the word of God, that it is something, but it's, it's fully, completely seen in the person and the works of Jesus. In fact, we're going to get to it later, but if you look at verse 13, right, it says the word of God, and it says all these things about it. Verse 13, it starts using a different word. It says, he, he, because the writer of Hebrews is talking about someone, not something. The word of God is sharper than any two are short. Jesus is alive and active, able to divide between spirit and, and, and body, able to divide bone and marrow. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the full presence of Jesus. Now, here's our other hermeneutical rule. Uh, it says it this way, context is king. Um, if you've ever bought or sold a house or if you're in real estate, um, there are three rules that matter in real estate. Do you know this? You've probably heard this before. There are three things that matter when buying or selling property. Location, location, location. 
right? Three things matter. Location, location, location. When you're studying the Bible, I propose to you the same idea. That when you're studying scripture, what matters, the, the way you read the book of Exodus should be very different from the way you read the book of Psalms. The way you read and understand what's being said in the book of Psalms should be very different than the way you read the book of Daniel. <laughs> the way you read the book of Daniel should be different than the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, different than Acts. Acts, different than Romans. Romans, different than Revelation. That when we are reading scripture, when you are reading scripture, it is so important that we understand the context because when we don't, We've all watched documentaries about cults that have originated from people taking verses out of context and creating these whole crazy, ridiculous ideas about who God or what God is, is doing. Context, context, context. So the question we'd ask ourselves is, is what is the context of, of Hebrews Four. Well, I know it's been a couple weeks. Scott filled in the last couple weeks. Super grateful for Scott. If you know Scott, tell him thank you. Um, hit him up on social or text him or something and tell him thank you. But if you remember back a couple weeks ago, we were having this conversation about a, a group of people who, um, who had, who had um, he's, he's challenging that there was a group of people, there was a generation that everything on the outside looked right. Right? If you remember the generation who came out of Egypt, they're standing in the wilderness. And he says to them, he says, everything looked right about him, but the, the language he uses is, but they didn't enter into his rest. Right? They didn't receive the fullness of salvation. They didn't enter into the promised land. And he's warning us. At the beginning of Hebrews 4, he's warning us that we could have all the symbols of religious rightness. We could play the part. We could look all the right ways. We could dress all the right ways. We could say all the right things. We could sacrifice in ways that people are astounded. And yet, there could be a great disconnect between our outward appearance of righteousness and the engagement of our heart. I mean, think about the people who are outstanding in the wilderness. Everything about them looked right. <laughs> if you don't know the story, God delivered them from Egypt, okay? But they had a part to play. Remember, God's going to deliver them, but what does he say? He says you have to sacrifice a firstborn lamb and smear the blood over the doorpost. So if you are standing in the wilderness, it means that you are a person who trusted God enough, who had faith to take and sacrifice one of your most prized animals and smear the blood over the doorpost. Otherwise, you're not in the wilderness, Right? The appearance of righteousness. They're the people. Um, a lot of people are astounded by the story of the crossing the Red Sea, right? Man, God parted the Red Sea. That's amazing. Can you imagine God parted the Red Sea? What a miraculous, amazing thing. You know what I think the greatest miracle of that whole thing is? That the Jewish people followed him through the Red Sea. Can you imagine? Okay, just, just, just think. God parts the Red Sea, and then you have to walk with walls of water holding up by an unseen hand of God, right? That is an incredible act of faith. They walk across the dry ground, and I've just got to imagine the whole time, it's just like a line at Disney. Like, they're just all getting closer and closer, like, please move faster, please move faster, please move faster, right? And yet, the faith demonstrated in being able to walk between the Red Sea, they get on to the other side. There, there are people who've been circumcised. There are people who follow the Sabbath law. They follow the regulations. There are people who in so many external ways look right. And yet, they come to the edge of the Jordan. 
And God invites them into the promised land, into the place of rest, the writer of Hebrews says. And there's a disconnect between the outward appearance of holiness and the inward heart. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to the people he's writing to. I think that's what he's trying to say to us. is to remind us that the God that we worship, the God that we serve, he's a God who sees your heart. You can, have, you can fool everybody else. You can have all the outward signs of righteousness and goodness and sacrifice, and people can go, oh, I have never seen someone of such great faith. People could say of you, at the end of your life, they could say the number of people that they've led to Christ, the way they've transformed people's lives, the people they've invested in, the people who are on the mission field, in ministry, whose lives have been changed because of them. And you could have all the outward appearances of righteousness, and yet, God looks at the heart. I think he's saying to the audience, to this, these scattered Jewish people, he's saying, Why are we faking it? That God knows. God, God knows what's going on inside of you. In fact, there's this passage. It's in Galatians. I love this translation. Look at this. Look at this. You just, Paul, if you don't know Paul, Paul's a, uh, uh, a little rough around the edges. Um, Paul sometimes can be a little gruff. And he says this in Galatians 6. You can't fool God. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. You can find yourself out in the wilderness having sacrificed, having walked through the Red Sea, but you can't fool God. You can, you can, you can fool others in the way that you honor God and your righteousness and your moral uprightness, but you can't fool God. Don't make a fool of yourself. You will harvest what you plant. If you follow your selfish desires, and, and here... You will harvest destruction. And sometimes, sometimes, I can just be honest, I've been in church long enough to know, um, sometimes our selfish desire is to look holy to everybody else around, all the while having an empty stone heart inside of us. If you follow your selfish desires, you'll harvest destruction. But if you follow the Spirit, you will harvest eternal life. The writer of Hebrews would say, you will enter into his rest. You will receive the salvation that's been promised you. You can't fool God. The writer of Hebrews, that's what he's trying to get us to understand. You can have all the signs of moral rightness in your body and in your life, but God knows. He sees. He's able to separate bone from marrow and, and the spirit from the soul. He's able to divide. He, his presence is like a great surgeon that can open you up and see your innermost parts that unlike us who look at the outside, that God is a great surgeon who can dissect and see the deepest parts of your soul. He already knows. And, and you know, in, in one sense, it might seem terrifying. It might seem terrifying to imagine, to be reminded, to know that God knows the most wicked parts about yourself. But here's the good news. Here's the encouragement for you. God knows 
the most wicked parts about you. And he still desperately loves you. Here's a profound thing to think of. Many of us have enough life left to live that the worst moments in our life are still yet to come. And God already knows about those moments and he loves you just the same right now. Why are we faking? Who are we trying to fool? In the end, we're not going to fool God. In, in fact, the writer of Hebrews, verse 4, 13 says this, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. I want to encourage you. I want to plead with you. I want to challenge you to be honest. To be honest with yourself. To be honest with a God who already knows. Everything is laid before him already. And I want to challenge you to be honest with someone else. There's a reason the scripture says that we should confess our sins one to another. Because one of the reasons we begin to hide things even from God is because the enemies lied to us. And one of the greatest weapons he has against us is shame. And we begin to feel the shame for the brokenness or the regret or the mistake or that night or that season or that decision or that desire in our heart. And we begin to feel that shame and we begin to think that we can hide from others and that we can hide from God. But he already knows and the great weapon we have against the lie of the enemies is to be honest one with another. In those moments when we're honest with God and we're honest with one another, God is the great surgeon. That's the hope of Hebrews 14, of Hebrews 4. That he can, he can go in and he can, he can cut out the rotten parts of your soul. He can dissect the broken parts. He can dissect the decay and breathe life and hope and goodness into your soul. Our hope and our good and, and, and our joy is not in our outward righteousness, but it is knowing that there is a God who knows the most intimate parts of us, who is at work redeeming and restoring those broken parts of us. And even in the midst of all of our brokenness and decay, he loves us perfectly. And so... I pray, I hope, I plead with you that you might have the courage to trust and believe that he is good and he is able and he has your best and that he is a God who is able to dissect even separating soul and spirit to bring hope and life and goodness to you if only you would let him.